others. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Today we're going to be talking about the fact that we affirm we believe in the communion of the saints. So follow along as I read this, and then we will go right into saying uh, the Apostles' Creed together. It'll be up on the screen, or it's in your worship guide in front of you. It says this of the early church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending in the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's say the creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, we are grateful to be here today. Thank you for the assembling of the saints. Thank you that you have brought others to visit among us. And as I said to someone just a few moments ago, I pray, Lord, that you would enable them uh, to, to feel a part of this family, this local body of believers, because if they are followers of the Lord Jesus, they truly are part of the body. We share that communion of the saints with them. So thank you that we have this opportunity to come into your presence, to sing praises, to hear your word read, to affirm these wonderful truths, ancient truths, but so vital for today. And we thank you that we have already prayed and continue to pray for our appropriate response in the midst of all of the turmoil around us, Lord. Help us to advance the cause of Christ and be a healing agent. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Last Sunday, and I think there was an allusion to this a few minutes ago when Kicker was doing the announcements, we had our annual meeting. Now, for those of you who are not normally a part of our fellowship, we have one business meeting a year, our annual meeting, we call it. And we got together, we discussed 
what happened last year. We projected out to this next year, and uh, we voted on our budget. By the way, that part of the vote passed 100%. I think it was just unanimous and uh, among everybody that uh, God truly is providing for every need that we have. The most satisfying thing about the meeting happened after the meeting. Now, I know this is probably not a universal thought, but several of you said to me how grateful you were for our meeting because you felt as if you had been to church. Now, that's not often said of Baptist business meetings, I assure you. But I am so grateful for that. J.I. Packer, it's not a quote that you see in your worship guide, but he said this, the acid test of what you believe about the church is expressed in the life of the church. And so last Sunday, church, you did well. That's not always the case among churches, certainly not this one. I don't know who first said this quote, but it's still quotable. To dwell above with the saints we love, now that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, now that's another story. <laughs> and if you've been around as long as I have, and you've served, and and loved the church, you found out, and I never heard it put this way until my study this last week, but I can't remember who said it, but this person said there will always be angular Christians in the church. They don't quite fit into our square or round holes. Somebody described Christians as being like porcupines on a cold night. Pastor Ed, you've heard this, haven't you? On a cold night, those porcupines want to get together for warmth, but inevitably when they do come close to each other, they end up sticking each other. It's easy for Christians to idealize the New Testament church. But if you read through it carefully, you don't even have to read through it carefully. Just read honestly through the New Testament. Every church you're going to find had challenges, not just external challenges, but internal challenges. Why? Because people are people, even redeemed people, and life is life. I was looking back as a part of my study at the church at Corinth. And you could apply a lot of this to other New Testament churches. But let me just walk you through. I, I, I went through the first several chapters of, of what Paul was talking about when he talked to the church at Corinth. And he begins by saying there were divisions among them. There was quarreling. There was a party spirit where they divided up. I like this pastor. Well, I like that pastor. There was jealousy. There was strife. There was class warfare. I'm better than you because I'm of a particular class. There was, can you imagine this, gross sexual immorality 
There were threats. There were lawsuits. I'm talking about against each other. Idolatry, misuse of gifts. Do I need to go on? And that's why Paul would plead with them. He would say these words, I appeal to you, brothers, I beg you, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. There be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Isn't that amazing that Paul would actually say those words? That was his appeal. And it came out of a good reason because it had been reported correctly, accurately. This was not, I'll be talking about something in just a little bit, this was not gossip. This was an accurate report of somebody who loved the church at Corinth, Chloe and her people, that there is quarreling among them. So let's look at two things about this part of the Apostles' Creed. Now, last week, if you were here, you probably thought that we were just about finished with the Apostles' Creed, and I, I want to remind you that after I did that little segment on I believe uh, in the, the Holy Christian Church, I reminded you we're not going to get to the communion of the saints. I'm going to save that until the last because it is on the heart of God, Old Testament and New Testament. Look what the psalmist said. Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. So we're only going to look at two things. You see them on your outline. Hang on, because hopefully we can, we can walk this course accurately and see what God wants us to learn about the communion of the saints. First thing is this, we participate with one another in the church. Here's the meaning of communion. The sharing or exchanging of thoughts, feelings, or material life, especially when the exchange is on a mental and spiritual level. And one of the reasons I was so excited about this Sunday, and I, I did not want to cancel, and I'm glad that we didn't, because I wanted to dovetail this message about the communion of the saints with us partaking of the Lord's Supper or communion. Let me give you another definition of communion. This is the Heidelberg Catechism. And I love the way that these old catechisms, confessions of faith, could just summarize going to the Bible, choosing different verses. But here is what the Heidelberg Catechism says about the communion of the saints. First, that believers, one and all, are members of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so vital. Are partakers with Him in all His treasures and gifts. Second, that each one must feel himself bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the advantage and the welfare of other members. And that's exactly what we saw in the book of Acts, that passage that we read just a few moments ago. Let, let me break this down for you. In, in, in three different ways, this is true. 
about the communion of the saints. And the first thing is, I want you to notice, and I stopped and I pointed it out to you, that our communion, and you've got to get this, first of all, is with God through Jesus Christ. If we do not have that sense of vital communion, we cannot have communion with each other. Paul said it like this, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so communion with God happens the minute that we are born again. It is, it's an organic union. He is in us and we are in him. But we're not alone. Salvation is never seen only as an individual, standalone thing. And there are several things that our culture has done, crept into our churches. This is one of the most devastating, that we tend to see ourselves only as individuals. And secondarily, if at all, as joined with one another. We are not folks, just an assembly of individuals who have come into this place, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are joined to him, and by virtue of that fact, we are joined to one another. When we're put into the body of Christ, we are automatically joined with all other Christians who are in Christ. And that's why if you are here from another local fellowship, we welcome you. You are a part, as I said before, of our family today. So do you get that? Communion with Christ, but communion with Christ means communion with other Christians. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Got it? Okay, but this second thing. Now, this second thing can actually be divided into two different things. I said to you that we are joined by virtue of the fact of being joined to Jesus Christ. We are joined to one another. But now watch this, and let's not forget about this, that we have been joined not only with each other, but we have been joined with all of the saints who have ever lived that are right now in heaven, and they are an assembly of people. It says in Hebrews, they surround us as a great cloud of witnesses. That second part says that we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. I want you to drop down there and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It, it, is, it is a mystical union. But we are joined with all of the saints that have gone on before us. And we are joined with those who will go after us. But there's that other part that we are joined together with saints in time and space. One is invisible, the other is visible. One is eternal, now ours is, but our, it could be called local. All right? Romans 12, 3, Paul said this, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are members of one 
another. You can't get away from this. And that's why some of the things that I'm going to say coming up are so vitally important about the way that we love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I wonder how I can visualize it for you other than what the Apostle Paul does in a, a place like Romans chapter 12 or uh, other places, 1 Corinthians where he talks about us all being a body and we are members of one another. Here's one way that we can put it is that we are joined together at the hip. Now that may seem kind of awkward because we're all joined at the hip with each other. And it's out of that that the writer of the Hebrews says something that's very, very important for the church. Now, I know that today is in a sense an anomaly, okay? I get it, and, and we, we look out and we see gaps, and that's going to be fine. You, you do what is best as you see fit under God for the best for your health and your family and, and all of the rest of that. But all things being equal, we have done an incredible disservice to the churches throughout this land, in fact, throughout the world, by having the attitude that attending every once in a while is okay. I see it in, in surveys, things that I have to complete. They rarely ask if they're, if, if, if they're checking on somebody, does this person attend every Sunday. They know better than that. What they say, does this person, is this person a regular attender? And by that, it's asking, do they attend once or twice a month? That's become acceptable. But the writer to the Hebrews said, that is not a picture of, of the body of Christ. Let us consider how to stir up one another, to love in good works, Listening to a message at home may stir you personally, but you will not be able to live out the love and good works by yourself. It has to be in the context of other Christians. Now, look at this. Neglecting to, let us not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Not you here. I'm preaching to the choir. I know that. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let me, let me put it like this. There can be no fellowship unless the fellows show up to meet together. I don't know if you've had this experience. I have many times, not only locally, but around the globe. You meet somebody, and maybe you don't even speak the same language, but through an interpreter, you find out that that person is a Christian, or you know that they're a Christian. And automatically, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, there is a bond. And you begin talking about things, and you may be culturally so different from that person, but you share a bond that is deeper than culture. You get excited about talking with that person. And, and let me just say it like this. I wrote it down, and I thought, do I really want to say this? 
Yes, I do. Many times it is a bond that is even stronger than flesh and blood where that flesh and blood is not a follower of Jesus Christ. So again, what is it that binds us together? People from every conceivable background or ethnic group. Things that would normally divide outside the church. And I wrote down this question, and then I put the dot, dot, dot so, so you could fill in the blank. I have nothing in common with, fill in the blank, picture another Christian. And then see how that goes with what we are saying here. Folks, you could not have had a more naturally divided group than Jews and Gentiles. So what was the common bond that held them together? Look at this, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. And folks, this has to be the thing that drives us. Paul says, for he himself is our peace. I've heard a lot of people ask me to pray for them. Pastor, pray that I have peace. So what do you say to someone who says to you, pray that I have peace? You say very lovingly with a smile, no, I'm going to pray that you have more of Jesus because he himself is our peace. Who has made, look at this, us both one and has broken down in his flesh. It's talking about what we will be observing at the end of this time, the Lord's Supper, communion. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. Folks, he didn't just break down the dividing wall vertically between us and God. He's broken down the wall. He has smashed the wall between us. Why? So that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus making peace. For those of you who weren't at the, uh, the annual meeting this last week, I shared with you some concerns that I, that I have. And I, I'm, I'm really trying to search these concerns out, and then we will be talking about some of these things with the elders at an upcoming elders meeting. But I shared that I had a deep concern about something that happened at last year's Southern Baptist Convention. And I shared with the group then, I'll, I'll just share it briefly now, that every time we have a convention, they have resolutions. Now, resolutions are not binding. But you walk down through them, and, and these resolutions are important because they kind of tell you where the, the convention is or a great number of people in the convention. And there was a resolution, and, and it's become known infamously as resolution number nine. I asked last week, I won't ask you this week if you even know what these terms are because I, I, was, I didn't figure I'd get many hands, but I was shocked. When I asked how many of you know what, you don't need to raise your hands, what critical race theory, CRT is, or intersectionality. And most would say, well, I don't know. So why would our convention pass a resolution 
adopting those two philosophies as an addition to helping us understand people in the church and outside of the church. Now, I, I, I think you ought to go and, and look up Google and read Resolution 9, and you're going to find the most wonderful statements, the most wonderful affirmations that we believe in the, in, in the Scriptures. They're inspired. We believe in the oneness, just what we've been talking about, but then it slips into the mix that we need a foreign to Scripture, godless, and that's what it is, godless form of interpreting life to help us get along. It would be like passing a resolution on the sanctity of life, which the SBC has done many times, but slipping in a little thing on saying, but we're going to look to the principles of planned parenthood to help us understand this issue better. I, j just hear my heart on this. If we trust that these people, these men are being sincere, then I would say it's foolish, even reckless. And if it's not that, if it's not that, then it's intentionally subversive. We don't need anything to divide us. And that's what it will end up doing because Christ has already abolished all of the things that make us different. We, it's not that we, not the differences themselves, but us depending upon those for how we relate together. We have one thing that binds us together. And that is our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, wow, how can a group of such diverse people come together and serve together and spend an eternity together. I heard this illustration years ago. Maybe it'll help. A picture of hell and a picture of heaven. And the first one, a picture of hell. This, this person was shown, this is a story, shown a picture of hell. And, and, and in hell there was this incredible banquet table that was just heaped up with all kinds of food, of different kinds. It was all so wonderful. But the problem is that everybody in hell had their arms that were locked out like this. They couldn't bend their arms. And so they were sitting there starving and, and, and angry and cursing and swearing because they couldn't get the food to their mouths. And the guy said, that, that is, that's an awful, awful picture. And then the next picture, he was taken to heaven. And again, there was a banquet table with all of this food spread out, and you can guess what's coming. And, and yet, all of the people in heaven had arms that were locked as well. They couldn't bend their elbows, but they were all smiling and laughing and singing 
and they were fully satisfied because they were taking up the food and handing it to the brother or the sister next to them. That's what the communion of the saints is all about. But not totally. Let's look at the next phrase, if you would. We protect truths and beliefs that have been entrusted to us. You know, Paul is famous in his writings for first giving, I'll put it like this, first the indicative and then the imperative. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like in Romans, Ephesians, in most of his books, he lays down, here's what you are, and now out of that, this is what you do. Paul usually spends about the first half of all of his letters going over what what believers are in Jesus Christ before telling them what to do. Now, let's look at what he tells us to do out of who we are in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, here's the imperative. He wants us to walk, but then he gives the indicative, a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We've been called together as the body of Christ, not just individuals. And then he goes on to say this, and this is how you do it. How do you live out that calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness? It's going to take this with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now watch this, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now I want you to notice something from this. And think about it for a second. Believers, are you, are you hearing this? Believers are never told to become one. We already are one. And we are expected to act like it. If you look very carefully at this, our job is not to create unity. That is the Holy Spirit's job to to create unity. But it's our job to protect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, how can you make sure that you are filled with the Spirit and that you are protecting the unity created by the Spirit here in this local church? at Heritage Baptist Church, or whatever church that you are a part of. First of all, realize this, and I've got three very, very quick things to tell you about. Here's what we need to watch for. First, realize this. Almost need a drum roll, something like that, for importance. First, realize as important as unity is, it is not our most important value. Let that sink in. Are are you following? Are you tracking with that statement? As important, and that's all I've been talking about up to this point, as important as unity is, that is not our most important value. Jesus taught that truth transcends unity as a priority. And that's why in John 17, the high priestly prayer 
of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was praying for his disciples, praying for us by extension. He waited to, to pray to the Father for the unity of his people until verse 21, but he preceded it with something. Sanctify them in the truth because he knew that we would not be unified together. That we would not be one unless we were sanctified in the truth. And then he said, your word is truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe on me through the word, that they all may be one. Okay, it's quiz time. We do that from time to time. Interactive preaching. Okay. Who is responsible for the unity of the church? That is not a trick question. The Holy Spirit creates it. Let me ask it like this. Who is responsible to guard and protect the unity of the church? I'm glad somebody said we are. Because for the most part, I'm convinced that many times people say, Pastor, that's your job. That's the elders' job. That, you know, you get together with the deacons and the elders and the staff, and man, you guys, you go for it. You protect. Now, our job is to protect the flock. There's no doubt about that. But when Paul calls the church, and you remember how we started this series on the Apostles' Creed? Everyone is a theologian. What you believe about the truth is vital. So Paul writes these words, excuse me, Jude did. While he was said, I write to you about our common salvation, I thought it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which is once for all handed down to the church. That is all of us. And then look at the last phrase of what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He talks about us, the church, being the pillar of and the ground, that is the support, not ground literally down here, the earth, but the pillar and the support of the truth. Okay, since we're all responsible for that, let me give you three things that you can watch for. I've been a pastor for, oh my goodness, over 40 years, full-time pastoral ministry. Um... And I would have to say that these three sins, I'm not going to write them on the board. You can write them down. I'm going to give a scripture for each of those. These three, let, let's call them Satan's devices, are huge in disrupting the unity of the church. Number one, write it down. Excessive complaining. Now, I put down at first complaining. I think it's right for us to dialogue and to be concerned and share those concerns. Certainly, that is a part of, of church life. It ought to be. Iron sharpens iron. We, we do that with each other. But there is a sense in which even believers can get into excessive complaining. Did any of you parents have... <laughs> 
children who whined growing up. We had one. None of my kids are in the service today, so I can say this. I won't tell you which one. But one of our daughters could, it, it, was, it, it was just a part of who she was. We, we just tried to correct it. She couldn't even ask for anything without whining. It wasn't, Mom, can I have some apple juice? It was, I want some apple juice. (laughs) Excessive complaining. Paul says do all things without grumbling. The word is complaining or disputing. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. The world is watching, he's saying, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights of the world. You know what complaining does? Let me just give you a couple of things that it does. You don't have to write these down. I think you would know that these are true. Complaining makes things look worse than they are. Complaining becomes a habit. Complaining skews our focus. Complaining increases complaining. Complaining makes people sad. Complaining kills creativity. By the way, some of you are sitting there and and you're thinking, I've been on the receiving end, and boy, this is all so true. Think of this one. Complaining rewards negative people. Causes bad relationships. Complaining creates complaining companions. And it leads to pessimism. That's why I ask you to pray for our leaders as we meet and talk about our appropriate response to the coronavirus. This presents an incredible opportunity for the church to be the church. Go back in history, some of the great plagues when they did not have the protections that we have. And the reason that the church made inroads into the world, they saw them giving their lives to minister. Second thing, excessive complaining. Did you write that down? Okay. Second thing, gossip. Oh, my. Here's Paul writing again. He's already gone through 1 Corinthians. He's lovingly rebuked them and told them, here's what I want you to be. And and then he says, I'm coming back. He says, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. Perhaps there may be still quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder. Again, I'm, I personally, I'm grateful for people who come to me and say, would you clarify, or I have a question, or I disagree, or, or whatever that might be. But again, through the years, and you can imagine this, and some of you probably have been on the receiving end. Let me give a parenthesis here. Whenever you are public, then you expect a little bit more of this, but many times not... Not, not from people in your own congregations. I've heard people saying things of me and in, in other situations, and, I, you know, it would always come third or fourth party and maybe get embellished or whatever. 
And I thought to myself, oh my, I, 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 would, I would not believe that thing that you, whoever it was was saying that I, or, or whatever the case may be. So just be careful. It's one of Satan's most effective devices. Then the last one is this, be watchful for false teachers. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We talked about that a few moments ago, so I won't go back and belabor that. But stay on guard. Now, do you know one thing that being confessional, I don't know that we would say we're a confessional church. We've been saying the Apostles' Creed during this series. My question has been, should we, should we continue to do that? And people would say, well, but we're a Baptist church. We're not a confessional church. But let me share with you something that I think being a confessional church does. It simply draws a line in the sand. And it says these are our convictions. So what's my exhortation to you, church, my brothers and sisters in Christ, with whom I am joined at the hip? Take care of your relationships. Take care of your relationships and be quick to clean up your offenses. I had a guy call me last week from out of my past and ask forgiveness for something. And I said, I was totally unaware. If you need it, I'll give it. But I was unaware that you had this, this problem or this attitude and whatever. I said, well, I'm curious. Why? He said, I have a family member who is in addiction. And my wife and I are going to Al-Anon. Now, this is not a plug for Al-Anon. But I'm telling you that one of the things in the 12 steps, there are two of them that are so vitally important that if we would, in, in, in a biblical way, would apply those. Step number eight, if you know that you've offended somebody, you, you write it down. Number nine, as much as possible, you go and seek to make amends. So I would say this, and before we take the Lord's Supper, check your relationships. Be quick to clean up your offenses. Take the truth of what God has done in Christ to secure your forgiveness. The Lord's Supper is not about you securing your forgiveness. It's about celebrating the securing that was done on the cross. And then make sure that you're keeping watch and protecting the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul pleaded with the church at Corinth. I'll put it up again. Do you all agree? No divisions among you. You're united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then let me just read this from you for, for, to you from Philippians 2, 1 through 8. And then we'll take of the Lord's Supper together. Paul says in this incredible passage, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry 
or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you're here today and you're without Christ, The invitation is open for you. The Bible says that if you repent of your sins and turn by faith to Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross, you will be saved. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer in Jesus Christ, we're going to pray in just a moment, and then together we will all take communion, the Lord's Supper, together. Father, I thank You for the reality and the truth of your word. I'm grateful that your word is preached faithfully Sunday by Sunday in churches throughout this city and throughout this country and throughout this world. I pray that we can be just a little part of it, for indeed we have a communion, a fellowship with others who are not present, others who have gone on, others who are around us still. And so we're grateful, Lord, that we can now Look to you as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.